You know, in my mind, I picture three 12-year-old boys just out for a fun little walk, just, just out being kids on a Sunday afternoon and walking along this creek. They were looking for a little fun and mischief, and all of a sudden they see this, this body floating face down in the creek. I'm Nat Cardona, the host of Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a Lee Enterprises podcast. You'll hear true crime stories as reported and told by journalists from regional newspapers across the U.S. For this set of episodes, we're looking at a multi-part series from the Buffalo News Watchdog team about a decades-old murder of a Catholic priest that remains unsolved. These stories will reveal shocking secrets and never-before-released details from the investigation. If you're new here, stop and head back to last week's episode for an intro to this case. And speaking of, quick correction from last week's episode. Towards the end of last week's interview, reporter Dan Herbeck mentioned that Father Vincent Bell was murdered six years after Monsignor O'Connor, when actually Father Vincent Bell was murdered six years before Monsignor O'Connor. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that means you gotta go back and listen. But for those of you ready to dive on into this week's episode, here's my interview with Watchdog team Dan Herbeck and Lou Michelle. Last time, Dan was able to give a little introduction of himself. So if you wouldn't mind, can you tell us kind of your history of your career and where you've been and where you are now? My name is Lou Michelle. I'm a reporter with the Buffalo News. I've been here 30 years and I've always had an interest in journalism since I was in high school. And I have the privilege of working on the watchdog team here at the Buffalo News. How long have you and Dan been working together? We've been working together since the day I got here. Dan was my mentor, uh, our former managing editor, deputy managing editor, Stan Evans, assigned Dan to work with me. We wrote a book on Timothy McVeigh, which was a national bestseller, American terrorist. Just like this case, did it bring you guys even closer? I imagine even working on the book was probably the epitome of being as close of a core worker as you can be, right? We spent more time together than uh, either of us would have wanted, but (laughs) <laughs> it was a, it was a very uh, worthwhile project, and we were still great friends when it was done. That that book opened up a lot of other big interviews for us with assassins, terrorists. But our meat and potatoes has been uh, crime reporting over the years, and uh, it's been a great partnership. Amen. Lou, so when did you come on as far as this group of articles goes and this research goes? Early in 2022. Mike McAndrew, our editor, had asked Dan to take a second look at that cold case uh, that he had written about on Monsignor O'Connor back in 2018. I was asked to file a FOIL. Eventually, we got what we wanted. Uh, the, the FOIL worked out, and uh, a high-ranking official at the Buffalo Police Department uh, instructed the Homicide Bureau to open up the files to us, the complete files. Dan had only gotten 30 uh, documents for the 2018 story, but there was more than 100 documents, it turned out, when we were given access to our surprise. You know, it was a box full of one file after another, yet some were missing, and then there was a dossier, is what they call it, a murder book. We actually sat down two days. We went over those files at Buffalo Police Headquarters in a small interview room 
in the homicide squad? That's one of the main questions through all of this. So hold that thought. We're going to go article by article. So for article one, it focused mainly on uh, the sisters setting up the scene of how everyone knew something was wrong uh, with Monsignor O'Connor not being there. Mary Joan Hess and her sister Anne Louise Hess, they were uh, in formation to become nuns at the time of the murder. And they got to know Monsignor O'Connor quite well because he lived in the convent with the nuns and he was their chaplain. And they are both still alive. They both decided not to become nuns and they both have always had nagging disturbing questions about what happened to this priest that they loved so much. Every Sunday morning, he would uh, say Mass at 7 a.m. for all these nuns, and he was always on time. In fact, he almost always got to the chapel at least 10 minutes early. They were sitting there, 7 a.m., came and went, and no Monsignor O'Connor. People were getting nervous because he was so dependable. They sent someone to his room to see if he was there. No one was in his room, and it like his bed had not been slept in that night. People were extremely nervous. Finally, somebody said, Father's not coming today. Someone else will have to say the Mass. And these two sisters I interviewed, they had a very sick feeling in their stomachs. They were really worried that something bad had happened to him. And as it turned out, they were right. They, they actually started crying when they were told that Father wasn't going to come to say the Mass. He had been very kind to them. They weren't allowed to visit with each other in the St. Joseph Mother House. And, but he would let them come up where he had his home office, where he would produce the Catholic newspaper at times and have editorial board meetings. And he'd let the two sisters visit each other because Mother Superior didn't allow that type of visitation. So he, he really had a heart, this Monsignor O'Connor. In this first article and also in Article 4, it is mentioned and described how Monsignor O'Connor was an editor for the Magnificat. Did you feel any connection because of that parallel in both of your careers with his? I know he was an editor and you guys are reporters, but it's interesting. Aside from the priest part, he was kind of in this field to some degree. Do you have any thoughts or sentiments when you were researching this case and thinking about that with keeping that in mind? For me, the fact that he was a journalist makes me want even more to try and get to the bottom of what happened. Is there, just because I couldn't get a really good grasp of where the Monsignor's living quarters are in respect to where he was found by the creek. Can you, is there some proximity distance that you can give me to set the scene for the listeners? Would you say Lua's about a mile away? I, I would say it's two miles. And the St. Joseph Mother House was off of Main Street, but just about one long block from the Skajakwita Expressway. And that he, he would take that west. His car was missing. So he obviously, we believe he drove from the Mother House and uh, his body was found two miles away, just off of the Skajakwita Expressway in the creek, Skajakwita Creek. And then his car was found 14 hours later, a mile east, approximately a mile east, back, going back toward the, the mother house, but in a very high upscale neighborhood. 
next to Delaware Park. The whole initial thought, okay, this must be suicide because of the glasses and the cap being laid nearby. Why was that the initial thought that he committed suicide? It seems odd. Is it just because of those two items of clothing found nearby or anything that you can elaborate on there? I think the police initially focused on the possibility of suicide uh, because that was, I don't want to say common, but that was not a highly unusual way for people to kill themselves in that era in Buffalo is people drowning themselves, throwing themselves into bodies of water. I mean, obviously they were wrong when they came to that that theory, but I think the fact that his his hat and his glasses were neatly uh, left on a guardrail near where his body was found. That was probably the main reason why they thought he had taken his own life. But that theory changed very quickly once the body was found, once they could see that he had been badly beaten around his face. And they very quickly started to investigate this as a homicide. The killer obviously placed the hat and put his eyeglasses neatly inside the hat. I mean, what killer does that? So you police would think that, you know, maybe it was the person himself before throwing himself down the bank into the creek. What what comes to mind from this article? Because this this one I it was pretty straightforward to me. Just main things that jump out at you when you were writing this one. You know, in my mind I picture three twelve year old boys just out for a you know, a fun little walk, just just out being kids on a Sunday afternoon and walking along this creek. They were looking for a little fun and mischief, and all of a sudden they see this this body floating face down in the creek. When they first saw it, they, they thought it was a dummy, a mannequin, and they went over and they, they pulled the body over to shore with a stick, and they still thought it was a mannequin. But one of the boys, Matt Naska, noticed that there was a gold watch on the wrist. And he told his friends, nobody puts a gold watch on a, on a mannequin. And sure enough, they, they turned the body over and they could see that this was an actual human being. And he'd been beaten very badly around his face. For these three, the you know, Naska, Baruso, and Brady, did you re-interview them? Are they still alive today? They're all still alive. Uh, I went down to the scene with a photographer and with Matt Naska, and he showed us exactly where they found the body. And he told me that it just sent chills through him to be at that spot, thinking back to what he saw when he was a 12-year-old boy. He said that all through high school, kids would ask him, are you the one who found the body? You're the one who found the body? He said he it was a kind of uh, fame that he never wanted in his high school, but people have always asked him about it to this day. Yeah, talk about a mark being left and that doesn't leave you forever. It's never left him. Understandably so. Now, this this brings me back to the top of this, and I think it was Lou who mentioned the, the whole FOIA request and, and getting these files and ending up with more files and finding that files are still missing physically. These files... Can you lay it out for me and the listeners? Are we talking 
typewriter print on old yellow aged paper? Is this stuff in boxes? Are you able to bring it with you? Do you have to stay where it's stored? Tell me what that looks like. When we gained access to what the Buffalo police say is the complete murder file on Monsignor O'Connor, it came in a, a typical uh, storage box, you know, probably 24 inches long and about 18 inches high with a cover on it. And the, the, the files are all typewritten. And, you know, you can see that the pages have yellowed over the years. There is a murder book in it. It's almost like a loose leaf folder. The files go up to 155 different files. They're known as P73s. We counted more than a couple of dozen reports missing. But there's still a tremendous volume of information there. When we went into that room and went through those old files, it was like stepping back in time five decades because these were very old pieces of paper. You had to actually be careful with them while, while you were looking at them because some of them were very fragile and they could tear in half. And the language that was used in these some of these reports, let's, let's just say, was not politically correct by today's standards. Right. Is that foreshadowing to the the questions about his sexual orientation or is it something else? Well, the way they referred to different people who were interviewed, uh, not only by race, but by appearance and other factors. You know, keep in mind that these reports were written in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. People did not have the same sensibilities that they have today. And, and I'm sure Buffalo Police reports written today would be nowhere close to this, but this was the era that this took place in. Speaking of the era, when you guys are reading these files, did either of you find yourselves frustrated with how things were done then versus how they could have been done today? I mean, you have the luxury of looking hindsight 2020, but were there any times where you're reading stuff and you're like, God, why did they do that this way? Anything like that? Well, one thing I noticed is the Buffalo police really did spread a wide net and did interview a lot of people and a lot of hard work went into this. The biggest frustration for me is knowing, based on the numbers assigned to various reports that we looked at, that dozens of reports that were written back then are missing. Um, we don't know what happened to them. The Buffalo police have told them that they've given us everything that they have. And we, we have no way of uh, saying that that's not true. But that part of it was very frustrating for me. When I was reviewing the files with Dan, I, I saw how today you have cell phones. You could, if it was today, the Monsignor would have had a cell phone. He was a communicator. They, had to, they did take fingerprints that was inside the Monsignor's car. They had to send the fingerprints by snail mail down to the FBI's headquarters in Washington, D.C. And it took a month for the, the results of comparing those fingerprints to come back. So everything moved very slowly. And of course, today you've got video cameras almost everywhere. Yeah, It's quite possible that in today's world, we would have seen exactly who was with Monsignor O'Connor when he left the 
convent late that night and went off to his death. We were told by a police official when Dan and I asked for the physical evidence in the case, like the hat and the eyeglasses, the gold watch that was on the Monsignor, the clothing that he was wearing at the time, that was missing. Uh, We were told the homicide uh, official said that he was told that, unfortunately, the physical evidence was destroyed to make room for new material over the years. But we haven't seen any of any physical evidence. And from my understanding is DNA can be recovered. You know, there's there were samples taken from the car. Uh, his Impala that was found a mile away. Where the Monsignor's car was found, and by the way, there were a number of blood droplets found inside the car, which police believe was the Monsignor's blood. That was on the same street as the bishop's office, the, the headquarters of the Catholic Church in Buffalo. Coincidence or not, that's where it was found. It was fascinating reading to see the the thorough job that the Buffalo police had done with the interviews and uh, what was revealed in those different interviews. And something that we haven't mentioned is that where the body was found, 200 yards away was this church, Catholic church, Our Lady of the Annunciation in Blackrock. Six months earlier, a very troubled priest had been assigned there, and uh, he had been gone for six months. Very strange coincidence, to say the least. The the article that's popped out to me for this first section, one through four, is the fourth one, because you guys really shed a lot of light on who Monsignor O'Connor was as a guy, what he was all about, the, the guy beyond his priesthood where did you get all this bio info from was it from his niece sharon battini is his closest living relative his niece and she filled in a lot of the pieces from his background like the monsignors both of his parents were deaf and they had met at saint mary's school for the deaf earlier in the evening before he went to the mother house and then disappeared. He had been having dinner with his father and his aunt. His mom had died when he and his brother were young. He came from a family of two two boys, he and his brother. And at about eight o'clock, he says, you know, I'm tired. I'm going to go back to the mother house and and call it a night. He had to serve mass the next morning at 7 a.m. An absolutely unique upbringing. And this guy's, he obviously had a very unique life he was described as a Latin scholar, and he taught Latin at one of the junior seminary over here when they had that in the city of Buffalo. Yeah, it's like, what didn't this guy do or what didn't this guy know? It's, it's, it's impressive. So you guys talked to Monsignor Lorenzetti. Monsignor Dino Lorenzetti is 101 years old. And he considered Monsignor Francis O'Connor one of his closest friends. I've known Father O'Connor from the time that I came back from the war. And all my life after that, as far as I'm concerned, he's a good man. A man of faith, a man of God. He was editor of the paper of the Magnificat. He had nothing but wonderful things to say about him. In fact, the night that the 
Monsignor Okana disappeared, they were supposed to go for a walk. That was one of their big activities. But he, he was in touch with his friend a lot. And there was another priest, ironically, that was murdered six years earlier, who was another close friend of Monsignor O'Connor and Monsignor Lorenzetti, Father Vincent Bell. In interviews with Dan and I, Monsignor Lorenzetti said that after his friend Monsignor O'Connor was murdered, he said, you can bet I was looking over my shoulder because two of my closest priest friends had been murdered. He lived in a convent there with, with nuns, but he and Father Bell were both murdered and they were on duty at the time. When I die, if I make heaven, and that's a big heaven, and I have an opportunity to have an interview with God Almighty or one of his saints, I'd like to know whatever happened to Francis O'Connor. He was a good person. He vanished one evening, and uh, he was found dead. I have no idea. I'm not here to judge. I'd like to know what did happen out of curiosity. I feel sad. I feel sad for him, even, that he's spent all these years probably just wondering what happened to both of them. He still performs masses at age 101. And you can just tell when you hear the man preach um, that he's seen a lot in his time. He's a man of very deep faith, and it comes through when when you hear him preach. You know, speaking of O'Connor's gentleness and easy way, I don't know if this is a standard thing that people put in their last will and testament actually talks about if he dies through untoward circumstances, that there would be forgiveness granted. Hey, Nat again here. Unfortunately, there was an audio glitch during the recording, but for clarity's sake, this is where Lou begins to refer to Monsignor O'Connor's last will and testament. I'll read it for you now. If perchance human frailty has hitherto hindered hindered me, me, I wish now to pardon all who deliberately or inadvertently offended me, hoping at the same time with Almighty God and men will forgive me my boundless sins, offenses, and negligence. Now that, that bespeaks somebody who you know, has the gift of faith, I guess is how you'd say it. Thanks for bringing that up because you can't read this article without focusing on that last part. It was when I got to that point, yeah. I was like, what? This guy actually mm-hmm. wrote this stuff? You know, it's 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 eerie. And and you're right. I think it's a testament to his faith and, and probably how strongly he believed it. But did he know something that we didn't know as far as what he would have been maybe preparing for. It's just, it's crazy. It makes you wonder, right? You know, John Lennon, Mm -hmm. he always had kind of premonition that he was going to be shot. And, uh, you know, people have those premonitions, but I I don't know if the Monsignor had it or not, but it is, like you said, not very eerie. Yeah, (laughs) along with everything else that revolves around this. Yeah, it definitely makes you wonder. That's it for now. Thanks to Dan and Lou from Buffalo News. You'll hear more from them next week on this Who Killed the Monsignor series. Make sure you subscribe to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles wherever you get your podcasts. See you later.